When you think of 20th century American painting, certain images spring to mind. For instance, Christina's World. Unveiled in 1948 by Andrew Newell Wyeth, it shows a young girl in a pink dress sitting on a great grass meadow that leads up to a prairie house in the distance. The image has resonated in numerous films, most obviously Terence Malick's Days of Heaven, while Jonathan Nolan admitted that the painting is a key image essential to understanding his Westworld series screened last year on HBO. Then there is Grant Wood's American Gothic from 1930, which shows a husband and wife, plainly dressed, standing in front of their home. Again, that appears on the screen quite frequently, the most evident instance being Sam Mendes' American Beauty, with Alison Janey and Chris Cooper as the very unhappy couple. But by far the most iconic American painting of the 20th century is Edward Hopper's Nighthawks. Completed in 1942, it shows a sparsely patronised late-night diner on a quiet street corner, and that image has been echoed in everything from Abraham Polanski's classic noir Force of Evil to Dario Argento's horror picture Profundo Rosso and Herbert Ross's musical Pennies from Heaven, right along to Ridley Scott's sci-fi masterpiece Blade Runner, Wim Wenders' meditative drama The End of Violence, and another Sam Mendes picture, The Road to Perdition. Yourself? I'm a salesman. Machine parts. Machine parts. That's wonderful. I assure you it is not. So who do you work for? Can you keep a secret? I'm press. Which, uh, which paper? All over. I'm something of a rarity. How's that? I shoot the dead. The reason why I mentioned all that is because the inspiration for Hopper's painting came in March 1927 when he read a short story in Scribner's magazine. He wrote to Scribner's editor saying, It is refreshing to come upon such an honest piece of writing in an American magazine, after wading through the vast sea of sugar-coated mush that makes up so much of our fiction. The short story that he read was The Killers by Ernest Hemingway. You got anything to drink? I can give you soda, beer, ginger ale. I said, you got anything to drink? No. This is a hot town. What do you call it? Brentwood. Ever hear of Brentwood? What do you do here at nights? They eat for dinner. They all come here and eat the big dinner. That's right. You're a pretty bright boy, aren't you? Sure. Well, you're not. Is he, uh... He's dumb. Hey, you. What's your name? Adams. Nick Adams. Another bright boy. Town's full of bright boys. The inspiration for the killers came from a murder that occurred in 1926 in what had once been Hemingway's hometown of Chicago. Born some eight miles west of the city, Hemingway had found work there in the early 1920s, writing freelance for several newspapers before moving to Paris with his first wife, Hadley Robinson. And it was in Paris that Hemingway learned of the shooting down in Chicago of veteran boxer Andre Anderson. Anderson was most famous for having floored world heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey in 1916. Ten years later, Anderson was murdered by the mob. The two events are unrelated, but in the years after his greatest triumph, Anderson had fallen far and by the middle of the decade he was known to throw fights for cash, and supposedly he was killed because he refused, finally, to take a fall. 
By the mid-1920s, large parts of the Windy City were under the control of what was then called the Chicago Outfit, or, less prosaically, the Mafia, with the likes of Al Capone, Johnny Torrio and Frank Nitti bootlegging, running rackets and, yes, fixing fights. There is a code to boxing, but what about honour amongst thieves? Hemingway was interested in the moral code. How does a man go about delivering death? How did Anderson meet his? An indication as to how he imagined Anderson met his fate can be found in the title Hemingway originally gave his story. The Killers was initially called The Matador. Hemingway told a story from neither the point of view of the gunmen nor the victim, but rather a witness. It opens in a diner where young Nick Adams is having his evening meal. Two strangers enter, looking for the Swede, otherwise known as Ollie Anderson. Tying up the staff and the patrons, the two strangers brazenly declare they have come to kill the Swede. But Nick escapes and races across town to warn his friend. Swede! I was over at Henry's. A couple of guys came in and tied up me and the cook. They shoved us in the kitchen. They said they were going to shoot you when you came in to supper. Well, George thought I ought to come over and tell you. There's nothing I can do about it. I can tell you what they look like. I don't want to know what they're like. Thanks for coming. Don't you want me to go and see the police? No. That wouldn't do any good. Isn't there something I could do? There ain't anything to do. Couldn't you get out of town? No. I'm through with all that running around. Why do they want to kill you? I did something wrong. Once. Thanks for coming. And that's pretty much where Hemingway's short story ends. His 3,000 words provide the film with just 12 minutes of plot. But there's an hour and a half left. And those 90 minutes are spent trying to figure out just why the Swede didn't run. But it's not Nick Adams who tries to figure it out. It is an insurance operative with the bland name of Jim Reardon who does all the investigating. And all that investigating was the brilliant invention of screenwriter Anthony Weiler. What unfolds is a devilishly complex plot chock full of vividly named characters such as Dum Dum, Blinky, Colfax and Kitty Collins. Weiler tells it through a series of flashbacks which go further and further and further back into the past before turning around and then subtly echoing each other as they reverberate forwards towards a fatal climax. Each of the flashbacks is prompted by the insurance operative interviewing several witnesses, whose testimonies reveal all manner of skullduggery, including stolen jewellery, stints in prison, a daring daylight robbery, the thieves turning on each other, betrayals, double crosses and, well, some of the testimonies appear to contradict one another. In fact, you could say that The Killers is a criminal version of Citizen Kane, where the story is pieced together like a jigsaw. Only, we're not trying to figure out what Kane meant when on his deathbed he whispered, But just what the Swede meant when, on what turned out to be his deathbed, he said, I did something wrong. Once. Viler did such a brilliant job, he was nominated for an Academy Award. Only later, Viler admitted that although he did write a script, the bulk of the heavy lifting was really done by John Huston. Huston had begun his career as a screenwriter, co-writing such Oscar winners as Jezebel and Sergeant York, before breaking through to writing and directing in 1941 with his superb version of Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon. That earned Huston his own Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay Adaptation. 
Only for the killers, Houston didn't receive a credit. And neither for that matter did the film's third and second uncredited writer, Richard Brooks, who would later go on to adapt and direct Truman Capote's non-fiction novel In Cold Blood, which, yes, also earned him an Oscar nomination. He said, look at me, boy. Take a good look, because I'm the last living thing you're ever going to see. And he pulled the trigger. But the gun wasn't loaded. So who decided that neither Houston nor Brooks would get credit? Not attributing blame, but that was largely down to the film's producer, Mark Hellinger. It was not uncommon in those days for several writers to rotate through productions, with the studio heads deciding for convenience to credit the first writer assigned to the project. Which sounds a little unfair, especially when you consider that Hellinger had himself once been a writer. A newspaper man whose beat was Broadway. Then Hellinger went west to Hollywood where he served as producer, sometimes, yes, uncredited, on such landmark gangster pictures as The Roaring Twenties, They Drive By Night and High Sierra. By the time Hellinger decided to turn the killers into a movie, there had been several adaptations of Hemingway's novels. The most recent of which was the Howard Hawks production To Have and Have Not, starring Humphrey Bogart opposite first-timer Lauren McCall. Hawks had secured Hemingway's agreement almost as a dare. Although a great admirer of Hemingway's writings, Hawks considered To Have and Have Not, quote, a bunch of junk, and he said to Hemingway that he could turn it into a good movie. A lot of people liked the final product, but one person who didn't was Hemingway. In fact, Hemingway openly loathed the two previous films based on his books, A Farewell to Arms made in 1932, starring Gary Cooper and Helen Hayes, and then from 1943, For Whom the Bell Tolls, starring Gary Cooper, this time opposite Ingrid Bergman. As for the killers, Hemingway later said, it is a good picture, and the only good picture ever made of a story of mine. Swell idea you guys had. Leave me holding the bag at the halfway house while you split up the dough, huh? I'll bet you it handed your lap. The halfway house burnt down last night. That's why we came here. Somebody ought to have let me know. You were told you're here. Next time, play it straight. I'll be seeing you, sweet. The Killers was directed with great skill and flair by Robert Seedmack. Seedmack made some other great noirs and was on a hot streak in the mid to late 1940s, putting together a run of pictures including The Spiral Staircase, The Dark Mirror, The Phantom Lady and Criss Cross. But it was for The Killers that he earned his only Oscar nomination. On the picture, he worked for the third time with cinematographer Elwood Bredel and together they delivered a lighting scheme that, in Bredel's own words, contrasted between crystal white and velvet black. But interestingly, the film's most striking sequence happens in broad daylight, and so striking is it that it stands as one of the truly great sequences in the noir cycle. I'm talking about the robbery. It is choreographed in one delicious take, the camera tracking in across the front of a hat factory as the workers enter for their morning shift, before craning through the gates as the thieves, disguised as workers, slip up the staircase to the payroll office and make off with the cash. It's worthy of Orson Welles, but if there is one way that they could have improved upon it, it would be with dispensing the voiceover. Shortly before 8 o'clock, four men, all wearing employee identification badges, joined the incoming day shift at the Prentice factory. There was nothing unusual about the interlopers, 
they lined up with the other employees, and the gatekeeper had no reason for suspicion as the four robbers sauntered through the gate, ostensibly on their way to work. But a truly great decision Seed Mac made was in casting Burt Lancaster as a Swede. Remarkably, Lancaster was 32 when he made this, his first picture. And even though he would go on to play physically imposing characters throughout his career, in this picture, Lancaster seems to play against his athleticism by depicting the Swede as a weak, naive man waiting for the final bell to be rung. But Seed Mac's real coup was in casting 23-year-old Ava Gardner in the role of Kitty Collins, for whom the Swede falls. Gardner had been in several pictures already, but no one really quite knew just what to do with her beauty. Seed Mac did, and Gardner delivered one of the all-time great femme fatales. First he called your names and said dirty things about you. And then he sprung it. What if they were not to go to the halfway house after the robbery? You'd go there, but they'd be someplace else, and so would the money. What did Blinky and Dum Dum say? They fell right in with the idea. Another thing to note is the terrific score by Miklos Rosa. Rosa worked with many of Hollywood's greats, Billy Wilder, Alfred Hitchcock, William Wyler, Vincente Minnelli. But here, he delivered a theme tune so delicious, he could not help but revive it later into this. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. A second full-length feature version of The Killers was made in 1964. Directed by Don Siegel and starring John Cassavetes, Lee Marvin, Angie Dickinson and in his last screen role, Ronald Reagan, it was made for television. Although shot in colour, it simply pales by comparison with Seed Mac's picture. More interesting for me is a 19-minute Russian version made in 1956. Covering only what Hemingway wrote, it was co-directed by then-film student and future film master, Andrei Tarkovsky. It's available on YouTube with subtitles. As for Seabat's classic, you can get that on Blu-ray, where the crystal whites and the velvet blacks only deepen the mystery. Mm -hmm. 